Remain standing for our gospel lesson from Luke 1. This is Mary's song, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you to bless the the reading, the preaching the hearing of your word. And so we pray that your spirit who inspired these words would work in our hearts and in our minds so that we can believe what you say, so that we can trust in your promises, and so that we can go forth from here this day, this week, and this in this new year as worshipers of the living God. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I underestimated how many sermons I would need to say everything I want to say in Luke 1 this Christmas season. So today we're going to work through half the passage that I just read, and then we'll come back in the season of Epiphany, which follows Christmas, to finish Mary's song. But that's okay because it kind of fits with my secret project to extend the Christmas season. It's a shame that we sing the best songs known to man for only about a month out of the year. And so I wish we could extend Christmas as we do, you know, we extend Christmas backward into Advent. I wish we could do that on the other side maybe a little bit as well. And so in an effort to kick off a new liturgical movement, we're going to finish talking about Mary's song in Epiphany. And I know I got my work cut out for me this morning. Uh, hopefully the, the eyes are not uh, droopier than, than normal, and the, and the thousand-yard stares are not more than normal. Uh, word on the street is that even the, the pastor's family stayed out late last night. So if my, if my corny jokes don't keep you awake, I trust that God's Word will. Well, the text I just read is Mary's famous song. And whether or not Mary actually sang these words initially. They're clearly poetic, and Christians have been singing them, putting them to music since the earliest days of the church. And you've probably heard this song referred to as the Magnificat. Magnificat is just the, the Latin word that means magnify, the verb magnify, which is the opening verb in Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. And that sort of summarizes, typifies the song. It's 
a song of adoration, magnifying God. The whole song magnifies the greatness of God. Mary makes God big in her soul in this hymn. One of the things that we learn studying the Magnificat is that young Mary did what most young Jewish girls did in her day. She memorized Scripture. In particular, she memorized the songs of the Old Testament. And if you look closely at this hymn, and I'll try to bring this out more next time uh, than this time, but you'll find echoes of the Psalms. But the Old Testament allusions that stand out most in the Magnificat are the ones that draw our attention to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, which we read a few weeks ago. Mary, or, uh, Hannah sang that song, remember, after she gave birth to Samuel. You see, Mary ingested God's word. She hid it in her heart. The more scripture you put into your heart and mind, the more you will be able the more you will be shaped, we'll say, by Scripture, by biblical words and biblical doctrines. You can tell what's inside a person by what oozes out of them. Or in Mary's case, by what came gushing out of her. If you fill your insides with cultural literacy or political talking points or popular music or mainstream media or funny YouTube clips or ancient literature or sporting events, those things will not only form your affections for good or ill, they will also ooze out of you, or sometimes they will gush out of you. If you fill your insides with Scripture, then the Scriptures will flow out of you. In particular, God's Word or words will fill up your prayers. They will become your words that you say back to God and to the people of God. And that's what we see in Mary's hymn of praise. She is, it's, it's a scripture-saturated prayer song. So do your prayers seem stale? Is your prayer life stagnant? When you talk to God, do you know what to say? If so, it's because you are steeped in scripture if you, if not it's because your prayers need to be infused with more bible the immediate solution to the problem of stale prayers is to open god's word when you pray and pray through god's word that's better than trying to come up with everything on your own but a, a long-term solution is to hide god's word in your heart read it over and over and memorize small and large portions of it so that, like Mary, you can pray Bible anytime, even when you don't have access to Holy Writ. Mary's inspired hymn tells us much about Mary, but it more importantly reveals God's nature and character. Look at how Mary begins in verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, a quick note here. Mary's not making a distinction, a sharp one at least, between her, her soul and her spirit. When I was in high school and, and college, there was a popular the, uh, you know, theology built 
on the notion that the soul and the spirit are completely different components of, of a human being. Actually, the Magnificat teaches us that soul and spirit are two different ways of referring to the same thing. Mary uses a common Hebrew form of poetry called parallelism. And this literary device is all over the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, you'll notice that two lines in a row sometimes seem to say pretty much the same thing. That's Hebrew parallelism. And, and, and she's doing that here. The first line and the second line mean basically the same thing. So first, in verse 46, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then in verse 47, she says it again. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary is worshiping God in her inner being. Her prayer is not a formality. It springs from the innermost part of herself. Scripture warns against the danger of mere lip service in worship and prayer. Isaiah 29 says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are where? Far from me. Mary wasn't going through the motions here. Her worship was not rote. Her praying wasn't thoughtless or formulaic. No, her words came from a heart that lived near God. So Christians, don't let your worship of God become mindless or heartless. Whether you're talking to God by yourself in your prayer closet or leading your family in worship or worshiping in the assembly with the people of God, make sure you magnify God not only with your words, but also with your soul. Let your spirit be animated by rejoicing faith, as Mary's was. And if it helps, envision, envision the intimate fellowship and the lively worship that you'll participate in when you get to heaven and for eternity. And work as hard as you can to bring your future praying and worshiping self into the present. Magnify God with your soul. Rejoice in the Savior, in your spirit. Bring your heart near to God. Close the gap between what your mouth says and what your mind and heart are thinking about. Close the gap so that your soul and your lips are thinking and speaking in unison. Don't offer God heartless prayers or mindless worship. Mary is overwhelmed by God's tenderness and compassion in choosing to bless her of all people. Verse 48, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Mary is the original Cinderella. In the Cinderella story, the prince looks at, a, at poor Cinderella in her lowly estate. Mary was as lowly as they, as they came. Most of us are, are so familiar with the Christmas story that it no longer seems surprising or, or scandalous. The Messiah was born to a nobody who lived in a place that most people in the Roman Empire had never heard of. and Certainly couldn't tell you where it was. If you made a list of all the ways 
a person could be of low estate in the ancient world, Mary would check about all of them. She was poor, young, unmarried. She was a woman who lived in an unimportant place on earth. She had no established worth, as it were. When she speaks of her, of her humble estate in verse 48, it's, it's not like, you know, the famous people, the award-winning actors who get up and talk about how humble they are by their greatness. She's not putting on airs. There's no pretense here. No, she really is lowly. She really has been humbled by God's grace. And she knows that her social and economic lowliness is but a dim reflection of her far greater spiritual lowliness apart from God, her Savior. She looks ahead in verse 48 to the time when all generations shall call her blessed. You see how her faith looks far ahead She's living by faith, not by sight. And that's what living faith is. Living faith lives by not what you can see, but by God's promises. She looks ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises. And remember, as, as we've already said, during her life, most of Mary's countrymen would not call her blessed. This is not something that she would experience much. This was a promise that would come to fulfillment mostly after she was gone. And in that sense, we could put her in the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. Remember, the Jewish leaders called her not blessed, but sexually immoral all of her life. Mary never overcame her status, her lowly state. But she also never forgot her identity as one who is eternally blessed by God. One of the reasons we know Mary's humility is real is that she, in her song, focuses not on herself, but on God's work. Not her own works, her own strength, what she brought to the table God and his works. She never mentions that she's going to give birth to God's son. There's no humble bragging in her song. She says in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary knows that everyone will call her blessed not because of who she is or what she has done, but because of who God is and what God has done for her. It's hard to be humble. There's no virtue that's harder to cultivate than genuine humility. There's no character trait that's more at odds with the old Adam than a poor spirit. We tend to think more highly of our estate than we ought. We tend to elevate ourselves and put down, lower others in our minds. We, we subtly put others down and, and, and then elevate ourselves, though it's never quite as subtle as we think. And sometimes to, com to combat this, we, we might put ourselves down publicly in a desperate effort to appear 
humble. But, but Lewis was right that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. A poor spirit takes himself out of the picture altogether. Mary centers her song and her life on God. She is blessed simply because God has shown her favor. Humility is walking through life with a profound realization that God has given you far more than you deserve. A poor spirit is recognizing how destitute you really are without God. Pride will lead you to focus on what you have, what you don't have, and it will tell you that you should have it, that you do deserve it. Humility, on the other hand, will lead you to focus on how poor you would be without God and how rich you are only because of God. Pride manifests itself in discontentment. Humility manifests itself in gratitude and praise, as we see here. And so as, you, as we meditate on Mary's praise in her humble estate for what God has done, we can ask ourselves, do, do we go through our days and weeks thinking about how we've gotten such a raw deal from, from our employer or our parents or our government or maybe even from God? Or in the midst of your struggles, do you know and tell yourself, God has been abundantly kind to me. He's blessed me with far more than I had coming. And he has not given, given me what I did have coming. Mary is in awe that God has regarded her, little old Mary, and shown her favor. It's like the psalmist who asks, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? What is man that you care for him? He sees this discrepancy between God's greatness and man's lowliness. Why the care? Why the consideration? Why the regard? And Mary can't fathom why God has regarded her a lowly servant. Why did you look upon me with such mercy and favor? When R.C. Sproul was alive and, and spoke on this verse on God's regard for Mary. He liked to illustrate the point with the famous scene from that old movie, Ben-Hur. When Ben-Hur was in chains and they brought him next to the well with a bunch of other slaves and he was on the ground at one point and no one would give him anything to drink. And so suddenly the shadow of a figure came across the screen and you could see somebody stooping over and giving water to the slave in his shackles. And as he drinks... He looks up into the face of the man who gave him the cup of cold water. And as a viewer, you see the radiance of the slave's face. You can't see who it is giving him the cup of water, but you know that it's Jesus. Mary has a similar experience. God looked at her in her state of lowliness. He noticed her. He regarded her and favored her and blessed her. And if you belong to Christ... You've had a similar experience. He's regarded you. You, when you were spiritually destitute of, of lowly spiritual estate, Jesus looked at you. He regarded you. He was mindful of you. He cared 
for you. And he did so by making a way for you to escape spiritual poverty and spiritual enslavement. He became a poor slave so that you could become rich and free. He died on your cross so that you could live. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In verse 49, Mary brings together God's might and God's holiness. The mighty one who does great things for us is not just raw power. He's not just raw power. He's also personal holiness. Sproul is again insightful on this. He says, as long as we can depersonalize God, make him an impersonal force of vague, amorphous power, we have nothing to worry about. Impersonal forces will never hold you accountable for your behavior. You will never have to face the judgment of cosmic dust. But the God who is, the God who has a name, and his very name is holy, that's who he is. That's his identity. He is the Holy One of Israel. He's not just mighty, not just raw force or brute power, but he has a holy power, a holy might, a holy strength. And his mercy is on those who fear him. Don't miss the impact of those words. The one from whom we receive mercy, beloved, is the almighty one, the omnipotent one, the holy one. End quote. Verse 50 says, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. How could we exist in the presence of the holy God apart from his mercy, except by his mercy. Without God's mercy, we would immediately be devoured by the consuming fire of his holiness. But God's mercy is not for everyone. He has mercy on those he has decided to show mercy to. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. If you're a recipient of God's mercy, it's only because he decided before you were created, in fact, before God created anything, he decided that you specifically were going to receive his saving mercy in Christ. Not everyone receives the mercy of the merciful God. Some, in the end, receive his justice. Throngs of people will receive God's eternal justice in hell, consciously suffering in the lake of fire forever, justly receiving what they have earned in this life. In verse 50, who is it that receives this mercy from God? Who is it? Those who what? Fear him, those who fear God. Do you fear God? Now, this isn't the kind of fear that you might have of spiders or snakes or burglars or heights. It's fear in the sense of reverence. 
It's the fear that leads you to, res- to, to have respect and sober-mindedness and awe and praise before God. We could say that it's a joyful fear, not an insecure fear. It's the kind of joy-filled fear that led Mary to write a song about rejoicing in God, her Savior, and fearing Him at the same time. These are not mutually exclusive. They go together. In fact, they, you have to have both to have one. Joyful fear of God should characterize your entire life. And it should manifest itself in a special way every Lord's Day, every Sunday. We're gathered here to worship the holy God with reverence, with awe. And because this God is your loving Father in Christ, your loving Father who has saved you from His judgment, from His justice, there should be nothing that brings you more joy than expressing your fear of God through worship and prayer and praise. I'm going to close today by talking about the strong arm of the Lord there in verse 51. Mary says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Right there in the middle of Mary's hymn of adoration is this image of Yahweh's, the Lord's, strong arm, which is a symbol, of course, of his strength, his power, his might. In the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord is a vivid picture of God's saving power. It goes all the way back to the, uh, to the Exodus community, to the, to the Pentateuch. God saved his people from Egypt with his outstretched arm. Most of you probably remember the story from Numbers 11. Moses was troubled, and the Lord was, was hot. He was angry, it says, because the people they led out of Egypt were complaining about their desert diet. They longed for the food that they had gotten to eat in Egypt when they were slaves. In Egypt, they got to eat fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. But now, they said, we never see anything but this manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for supper. If they wanted a midnight snack, the only thing in the pantry was manna as long as it hadn't spoiled yet. If the, if the Hebrews were, if they had been hobbits, they would have had to eat manna six or seven times a day, depending on how you count up their, the number of meals they ate. They had baked manna, pot manna, fried manna, whatever they could do to alter the, the texture and taste of this stuff. And they couldn't take it anymore. They wanted some meat. If only we had meat to eat, they told Moses in verse 4 of Numbers 11. They wanted to go back to Egypt where they were slaves just so they could eat the food that was there. Their spiritual bankruptcy made Moses want to die. In verse 12 of Numbers 11, he tells God, Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me 
to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors. Where can I get meat for these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let my face, I'm sorry, and do not let me face my own ruin. Did you hear how Moses confessed his inability to carry the Hebrews in his arms? Both of his arms were not put together. Both of his arms were not able to carry the Hebrews. They weren't, he wasn't strong enough. In response, the Lord tells Moses, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him meat, all right. Verse 18, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils, and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So be careful what you whine about, right? God said, you want meat? I'll give you meat until you're vomiting it. And you won't ever want to see or smell meat ever again. Moses isn't quite satisfied with this answer. He asks God where he plans to get enough meat to feed this horde of Hebrews meat every day for a whole month. In verse 22, he asks God, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? In other, word, in other words, Lord, isn't this even more than you can do? In the next verse, God answers Moses' question with a question. Sometimes that's the best way to answer a dumb question with a question. Verse 23 says, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Do you, Moses, do you think my arm is withered up? Is, is my tricep a little too flabby these days? Am I a dried up old man who has lost the strength of his youth? The word specifically re refers to the lower part of the arm, the forearm, even the hand, which is where the strength of an arm interacts with the world, right? Moses, has my forearm shriveled up? Have I lost my grip? And then he tells Moses, you will, you will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. What a wonderful image that, that God gives to Moses here. And it's this image that makes its way into Mary's song. He has shown strength with his arm, Mary sings. The rest of the hymn unfolds how God has demonstrated his strength, and that's what we plan to consider next time. But today, let's just ponder for a moment here the power of God's arm. 
At, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that Mary makes God big in her soul. She is magnifying God, praising him, making him, making him magnificent in her heart and mind. And here in verse 51, she sees God's big, strong arm on display in creation, in history, and in her life. Now, most of what she sings about is future, but she still sees it with the eyes of faith because she believes God's promises. One, one of the things with most, uh, one of the, we could say, maybe problems with most New Year's resolutions is that they're often more focused on our strength than they are on God's. They're more about what we plan to accomplish than what God can and will accomplish through us and His power. So whatever resolutions you might have already, that's fine, keep them, but add to them making God bigger and yourself smaller. He must become greater, I must become less. Figure out some specific ways in 2023 that you can magnify God and minimize yourself. In your prayers, magnify God and minimize yourself. In your soul, rejoice in the greatness of God's glory rather than in your own. In every friendship, make God bigger even than the relationship. In your conversations with others, Make God greater and yourself smaller. God doesn't need to be made great again. He's great no matter what you do. But he might need to be made great again, or perhaps great for the first time, in your heart, in your imagination, in your plans, in your media consumption, in your relationships, in your vocation, in your worship, in your leisure time, in your priorities, in your home, in your marriage. Recognize in 2023 that you're just like Moses, who told God, I can't carry this burden in my arms. Whatever, whatever burden you're bringing into the new year is too big for you to carry. There's, there's no way you can do it, but, there's, but it's no match for God's strong arm. Recognize in 2023 your low spiritual estate. Confess that you are small and make the entire year about your big and great God. Mary's song isn't about Mary, not centrally. It's about God and his mighty works. Whether you realize it or not, 2023 is not about you. Whatever else happens this year, it will be about how God regarded you in your lowliness, how he blessed you as his child, how he employed his strong arm to save you and to glorify himself through you. Get on board with God's vision for you in 2023. And your main job this year is to magnify God in your soul and to rejoice in Jesus, your Savior. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. God, we do magnify you. We rejoice in the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, we ask you to help us to do this every day this year. That we might make you big in our, in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirits. And that we might become less. 
We thank you for regarding us, for looking upon us favorably. We thank you for saving us in our spiritual destitution. We pray for these things and we thank you for your good gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.